and welcome to episode 10 of Booze Podcast. I'm your host, Ollie. And I'm Sam. And we have some sadness and spookiness and everything for you today. A Thank lot you. of catching up. Yes, it's, well, for y'all it hasn't been a while, but for us it has been. But I feel like every episode we're like, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> and then the listeners are like, nah, girl, I listened to you last week. Well, but. they didn't listen to you last week. Oh, no, 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 no. I was MIA. Which right off the top of my head, I, off the top of my, is that right? Is that the right analogy? I think so. You said it right. Anyways, I have to do some housekeeping and apologize for the late upload of the Gary Heidnick episode because we had some technical malfunctions because I forgot to hit unmute. Oh, so. but it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> but it went up the same day, so. Yeah. Hey. Thank you. Important thing is you are here to do it because yes. I was not. I was uh, driving to work listening to it because we got to make sure quality is up to par. And I was like, fuck. I'm like, I fucked up. <laughs> oh, no, no. What was it? It was, when did you record? You recorded it Monday? And then? The day I texted you and said I would take over so you didn't have to worry about it. Was, oh, okay. I think the day after the, your wedding. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I texted you really early. I'm like, I'm sorry. I know you're probably hungover. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, it was. <laughs> Were you? Was it really bad? No, not really. I mean, no, it's fine. I got some good brunch in me the next day, and all was good. That's good. That's yeah. good. Did you want to tell them anything about the wedding? Oh, well, I had a wedding, oh. and <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and all of my favorite people were there. Sam was there. Thank you. Of course. We were late as fuck, but... Hey, that's okay. No, I was late as fuck. Like, <laughs> late I, to your own wedding? Yeah. I'm, that was the first day I wasn't ang- like worried about time or anything, mm-hmm. even I probably should have been, because <laughs> I was like, this wedding isn't going on without me, so yeah. I'm chilling. <laughs> I chilled a little too much, though. We walked Ooh. in right as Gabriel was saying his vows, and you guys Aww. were crying all cute, and <laughs> it was real sweet. So. I am a crier, so. <laughs> uh, Disney movies. Oh, Disney crying movies make me cry like, for everything. And now that Disney Plus is on, mm, I don't know. Which it, I don't have. I don't have it yet. Do yet. you have Verizon? No. Oh, because Verizon's doing a free year. Oh, bastards. No. I'm like, fuck, I shouldn't have switched. <laughs> Yeah, no, I do not, but, eh, oh, well, even Stevens is on, so. I saw some Lizzie McGuire people were posting. I was like, oh, damn, I need gosh, to get on that. I need that, yeah. I'm really excited, which is kind of boozy. I'm really excited about the Disney originals. Mm-hmm. Halloween Town. Mm-hmm. And do you remember the one, Don't Look Under the... Yeah, Don't Look Under the Bed. Yes, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched that probably two Halloweens ago, and it's still scary. (laughs) It didn't change. (laughs) Hold up. That is the scariest movie for a kid. Like, it was disturbing. I feel like a lot of kid movies are terrifying, and we just don't click it. And then we get older, and we watch it, and I'm like, whoa, that's really fucked up. Why did I watch that at that age? Yeah. Well, back in the 90s, I felt that was, like, prime spooky kid Mm -hmm. material was out like yeah that makes sense for sure now it's all like flowered up and flowered up is that even a no No. well i'm gonna make it a thing (laughs) (laughs) if something if we talk about something nice it's flowered up it's all bubble wrapped bubble there i like Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. i like that a lot (laughs) before i forget I have one more gift for you from your wedding. For me? Yeah. <laughs> so hold on just a second. Okay. Elevator music. But I saw this. <gasps> oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> I'm and inside. Oh my God. Thank you so much. This You're is welcome. Perfect. It is perfect. Yeah. I know how much uh, New Orleans is for you <laughs> and everything. And that's where you had your bachelorette party. So I figured. Yes. Anyways, for those of you who can't see. Oh. <laughs> We're here screaming like, what is it? It is a sign that just says New Orleans French Quarters. But it's so. pretty. It has a golden. It matches the mirror I got here. Yes, it does. <laughs> it has a golden uh, frame, which is really nice. It's perfect. Cool. Thank you. I love it. You're welcome. I said, I'm like, it's perfect. For 100th episode, we go to New Orleans. I would be so down. We so down in a haunted hotel oh, that'd be so good and saying it now and speaking it into existence yes for sure i feel like we ca- caught up before we started recording so now it's just us 
are you talking about? Talking about things. <laughs> I know we try. So we try really hard to save what we have for the podcast and but not talk at all. But that's really hard. Like we see each other, see each other once a week, and once we see each other, it's like, and then like I'm like, oh wait a second, we have to talk about this on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so are there? I think there are some things I said. Oh, I was going to talk about this on the podcast, but and yeah. I think I'm cutting this out. Yeah, so in New Orleans, speaking of New Orleans, I went to the Museum of Death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's an experience. If you haven't gone, I heard the one in Los Angeles is better, but I thought it was still pretty cool. Um, it's not that big, and it took probably about 45 minutes for me to go through. By and yourself, because everyone... <laughs> by myself, yeah, because everybody <laughs> left. Um, I... I went with a group of probably seven girls. It when I told my I told my best friend Christy, I was like, "Well, uh, this is like the time of the year I can get away with my spooky stuff, like make people do spooky things with me, because uh, it's Halloween and yeah. everybody and we were all dressed. Wait, were we dressed up yet? No, I think I made everyone wear black. Um, <laughs> Very on brand. Yeah, so <laughs> that's my my brand is just black. And they're like, "What's your wedding color?" I'm like, "Black." <laughs> what do we wear to New Orleans? Black. <laughs> what do we just just black? Okay. Just well, black. even the Halloween costumes you guys picked was black and white. Oh yeah, Cruella. <laughs> I was Cruella, and they were Dalmatians. So cute. And that was fun. Um, but yeah, we went to the Museum of Death, and is very heavy in there. I mean, some of the things were. I mean, at first, you know, kind of easy into it mm-hmm. with the there was like animals and jars and things like that taxidermy animals and then it was like bam murder mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they had like drawings of uh draw like drawings that murderers have done mm-hmm. like in jail of course crime scene photos they did have uh like old school embalming kits they had those in the la one which i think is fascinating so the la one is pretty much the same i haven't been to the new orleans one so i can't kind of tell you but when you first walk in it's all like portraits of all the different serial killers and paintings they've done like you were talking about and then the next room they have an actual pirate shrunken head like an actual shrunken head oh, mm-hmm. um i think there there are a few in new orleans also but it's kind of towards the end they have a little cannibalism section oh cool they don't have that yeah. in the la one and it just talks about cannibalism a little bit and mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous tribes that do practices like mm-hmm. shrunken heads yeah um and then you walk into another room i'm from what you're saying i can assume that the la one's a lot bigger because then you walk into another room and they have like actual caskets and um i think children caskets and like the embalming stuff and all that oh, wow. so and it's a room full of it's that. a room full of that okay and then there's two or three rooms and a hallway completely filled with the crime scene photos and all of that there is a secret sectioned off part that has like um oh what's her name that's that lady who killed her husband and she had like cut off his penis and she was posing with it and there, mm. there's photos of her like cutting off his penis and stuff like that and those are kind of like sectioned off so that you don't see them right away hmm the only one i know about but she didn't murder her husband was lorena bobbitt yeah no, there's so another lady her. yeah her and like her like secret affair or something um ended up murdering her husband i and they took pictures of yeah it? they took pictures of the whole Wild. process so those are there um i'll we will have to do an la trip at some point and i'll have yes. to take you because it's it's intense and i mean being surrounded by always seeing like crime scene photos and stuff like that i never thought that they would affect me but being in a room just completely all four walls covered in crime scene photos that is rough yeah i don't know what it is because it didn't really affect me at first either and when i listen to podcasts I always that's why we always include photos because I am that person that digs these photos up mm-hmm. and they're like it will, some hosts will be like well warning this photo is a little graphic or like don't look at the pictures and I'm like oh if you say that look at them. I'm looking <laughs> yeah and yeah I'm really not that affected by it and I don't know why it just doesn't bother me but I guess just all of it and maybe everyone's emotions also all of that energy is just kind of festering inside you know that little space because it punches you and i think matt because matt went with him went to the one in la and he wasn't affected at all and i me who's constantly looking at these photos i was like this is fucked up like yeah i think you're you're pretty empathetic though also that's true yeah 
some people can block that out because they're just like, eh, whatever. whatever. And Matt's very like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it, it just felt really heavy. And I went in and I stayed there for a solid like 45 minutes reading everything or trying to. And my girls were in for like five minutes, five to ten minutes, and then they bounced. They like went to a bar <laughs> next door. And after I was telling them, I was like, yeah, maybe I was just drunk or something. But I felt <laughs> weird. Like I felt... Like, it was hard to breathe, and they're like, no, you weren't drunk. Like, it was definitely the energy in there. It was just really, really tough inside. I'm like, okay. Yeah, and the one in L.A. people have fainted. They've had to call ambulances. Like, there's warning signs everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think the one in New Orleans didn't – I didn't notice any warning signs, but I noticed, like, posters and T-shirts that had people passing out. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucked up. (laughs) I mean, there were drawings. There weren't, like, actual people. That's funny. But anyways, backtracking to the embalming thing, your girl signed up for mortuary science. Yay! You're like, we're toast. Toast to <laughs> your... Toasting. New, there you go. So yeah. I'm going back to college, which I'm not too thrilled about, but um, uh, when it comes to learning about embalming and being a potential funeral director, I am down. So we'll see how that goes. So we're going to have an expert at hand here. <laughs> we'll so, see if they accept yeah. my transcript. Oh, well, they will. <laughs> I think that kind of catches everyone up on what's been going on and some of our little personal spooky lives. Mm-hmm. And well, are you ready to get started? Yes, let's jump into it. Okie doke. I hope my phone doesn't die. Oh no, because my story's on my phone. <laughs> this week we are going to do a little something a little bit different uh, because it's a little time sensitive, and it, we're not going to go into a whole story, but. We are going to talk about a case real quick just because it needs more public attention or it can't get enough. All right. So if you, well, you don't even have to live in Texas to know about Rodney Reed. And I, for one, have been avoiding this topic for a while. Uh, I heard about the case a while back, uh, but really didn't follow. And last weekend I was invited to a protest in Austin at the governor's house to halt his execution date. And... I wanted to do a whole story about it, but the whole, like, podcast world is saturated, and as should be about Rodney Reed right now. But yeah, when it comes to those who are wrongly convicted, I just become an emotional mess. Like, Mm -hmm. that's one of the subjects uh, that just really tears at my heartstrings. But as heart-wrenching as it is, it's really important, incredibly important to talk about it, especially when an innocent man is about to be executed. Yes. I'm not going to do a whole spiel on the Rodney Reed case, but I'm just going to give a basic overview for those who might be unfamiliar. So in 1996, 19-year-old Stacy Stites was found brutally murdered on the side of the road in Bastrop, Texas, which for me is not that far from my house, and my mom used to live there, and it just feels like it's my backyard, and it's crazy to know All this is happening so close. Stites was found 12 hours after she was supposed to clock in at the local HEB where she worked. Uh, Stites, at the time, was engaged to a white police officer known (laughs) Jimmy Lewis Fennell Jr., but she was secretly having an affair with an African-American man named Rodney Reed. Of course, Rodney Reed ended up being pinned for the murder shortly after her body was discovered. Despite Fennell's history of violence, he was not suspected in the killing of Stacy. Which, digging into the case, it's crazy to think about because, or the crazy that this is all happening because, in our opinion, dude, Fennell, hundred percent did it. Yeah, hundred percent. It. Ugh. All uh, evidence like, points uh. to Fennell for sure. So the top 10 facts to know about this whole case, and this is according to the Innocence Project, I just grabbed, I wanted something quick to grab from there, just so people who are unfamiliar know uh, kind of the big, the big issues surrounding it. So number one, the murder weapon was ne- has never been tested for DNA evidence. And this was back in the 90s, late 90s, when DNA was starting to become a thing. But despite having that tool in our back pocket now, the um, murder weapons have never been tested. Uh, So requests for DNA testing of crime scene evidence, including a belt that was used as a murder weapon, has been repeatedly denied by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. 
In 2018, the United States Supreme Court declined to directly review the court's denial of DNA testing. Um, huge fact number two. The state's three forensic experts have admitted on the record to errors in their testimony, which led to Reed's conviction and death sentence. So Rodney Reed is currently awaiting the death penalty and is scheduled to be executed November 20th. Which, which is two days from the day of this coming out. Yeah. Uh, the three forensic experts from Reed's original tri- original trial have submitted affidavits that the original time of death is inaccurate, which makes the timeline for Reed killing Stites implausible. So that was a, a fact, or that was a huge thing in the case, was that um, that the fiancé wasn't available, or d- at the time of death wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been possible for him to murder her because of the timeline. But then now, new evidence says that's not when she died, mm-hmm. uh, which... Could have been used a long time ago. <laughs> um, and I would also like to add that when they found Stacy's body, they started checking her right on the crime scene, just out in the open for everyone, even before the coroner could even take a look at her. Um, so they ruined a whole bunch of evidence, a whole bunch of things there. Uh, Rodney's fingerprints were never found at the crime scene or in the car, which they were trying to use for their story. Mm-hmm. And there's just no trace of that in the car or at the crime scene. Just yeah, drives which me crazy. leads me to the next area that the Innocence Project covers, which is the prosecution's only forensic evidence linking Reed to the crime was semen taking from Stite's body, which was attributed to their consensual relationship that people now, now people are coming out and saying, yeah, they totally were seeing each other. That was the only part of reed's dna that they were able to find and originally in the coroner had said you know this is for sure the day of but uh, more recently looking into it the amount of semen that was found in her body was so little that they kind of back up the claim that okay yeah this could have been the day before the even the day before that mm-hmm. so before they were like it has to be day of but there was just so little sperm no and even even if I have no words. Yeah, that's why I hate talking about things like this because this is something that really does choke me up and it's really hard to talk about. But semen can live in your body. Sperm can live in your body. Semen can live in your body mm-hmm. for for a number of days after any sexual encounter. Yeah, for months after the murder, Jimmy Fennell was the prime suspect in the case. A recording of one of the police investigators indicated that Fennell was suspected and the murder of Stites, motivated by her relationship with another man. But he was never put on trial, and even at the trial, he he claimed, like, the Fifth Amendment and... Failed two polygraphs. In, yeah, that he did. And yeah, he refused to speak at trial, which, I mean, smart for him, because... Did you know that they never searched his or Stacey's house? <laughs> I think I did read that, <laughs> which is also <laughs> fucking mind-blowing. I know. Yeah, and, okay, so number six on the list. Fennell's best friend at the time of the crime, Bastrop Sheriff's Officer Curtis Davis, has now revealed that Fennell gave an inconsistent account of where he was on the night of the murder. Fennell had told his friend that he was out drinking on the night of Stites murder. Contradicting this claim, he later stated that he was with Stites in their apartment during what we now know was the actual time of her death. So, and then also on our... Um, on our resources, I'm going to post a documentary that I watched about the case. And it's a YouTube. It's only it's on YouTube. It's only an hour long. But yeah, he he had mentioned like, oh, I didn't even hear her. I never hear her go out um, and leave for work. Like I didn't even hear her go out or leave that morning. And then later he was he said, yeah, she didn't even have breakfast that morning. And we're like, wait, I thought mm-hmm. you were asleep. Like just like all there were so many inconsistencies with his story and where he was and what he was doing but every i guess this whole court decided to just dismiss it the prosecutor or the prosecutors the defendant uh for reed was just i don't know who he got and he couldn't afford a proper he couldn't afford a proper attorney so he was court appointed one yeah which i'm like 
what the hell? <laughs> like, anybody can be a fucking and lawyer, Rod- it sounds like. <laughs> and Rodney had an alibi for the time that she was said to have been murdered. He was with his cousin, and his cousin kind of stood up and was like, he was with me. I would know if he decided to just go and kill Stacy in this time frame because I was with him. So, ugh. Yeah, and speaking of, yeah, witnesses, two witnesses have come forward in recent weeks and submitted signed affidavits that add to the mounting evidence against Jimmy Fennell. These affidavits include testimony from an insurance salesperson who stated that Fennell threatened to kill Stites while applying for life insurance. Like, this guy is like an outright sociopath. Mm-hmm. The second witness was a deputy in the Lee County Sheriff's Office at the time of the murder, who Fennell made an alarming and incriminating statement to at, uh, to at Stites' funeral regarding her body. And then our favorite police officer fennel later served later served a 10-year prison term for a sex crime and kidnapping law enforcement records also documented a pattern of violence against women perpetrated by fennel so this man had a history of violence and sexual crime sexual deviances we had just well no i think this is off the podcast but yeah he was released in 2018 so he's out there living his best mm-hmm. bastard life and yeah and as we mentioned in the beginning this case is racially charged read a black man was found guilty of murdering stites um a white woman by an all-white jury all white male jury oh is it all males all too? males which Wait. um that's not your fellow peers that is just one specific type you know and i'm sure there are some people out there that the um uh, I'm colorblind. Color doesn't mean anything to me. But you have... Mm -hmm. People have bias, hidden biases against other other minorities or just other people. So I think it's real. I'm an advocate for having a mix of ethnicities and diverse... A diverse background on a trial. Especially one as damning as this one. Like you're not trying for... Or you're not fighting for whether or not you're paying a parking ticket. Like, you're fighting for whether or not you're going to be put to death. Um, And then the last one that the Innocent Project covered was a confession by Jimmy Fennell has come to light. On October 29th, or, yeah, October 29th of 2019, not even a month ago, Arthur Snow, a former member of the Aryan Brotherhood and prison mate of Jimmy, disclosed a conversation in which Jimmy confessed to murdering Stacy Stites, saying, I had to kill my inward loving fiance. Trash. Like, hello. Oh my trash, God. trash, trash. <sighs> so I'm going to take a sip of this wine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What are you drinking? <laughs> I sound <laughs> drunk already, but I'm just sad. What? Uh, cupcake? Rose. Pink rose. Ew, I said that gross. <laughs> it's a cupcake pink rosé, which I think we really needed for this. Because mm-hmm. I was bawling my eyes out before this, just reading about this. I'm like, this is fucking bullshit. Um, so if yeah. you guys, if we still don't have good news at the time of this coming out, um, if you go to freerodneyreed.com, that is F-R-E-E-R-O-D-N-E-Y-R-E-E-D.com. Um, you can sign a petition there. They also have phone numbers, which I'm going to give you right now. If you would like to call the governor, TBPP, and DA Brian G- G- Gortez, and Brian Gortez, um, the phone number will be 512-967-0567. Again, that phone number is 512-967-0567. Um, and you will be connected to each back each office back to back um and when you call just let them know that you're calling to advocate for the behalf you are calling to advocate on the behalf of rodney reed an innocent man who has been wrongly convicted and sentenced to death on november 20th um some specific things you should say is ask governor greg to grant rodney clemency to stop or delay rodney's execution um and then ask the Texas Board of Pardons and the Parolees to recommend to the governor that he do the right thing by stopping rodney's execution delaying it or granting him clemency and then you next want to ask the bastrop county district attorney brian to withdraw his petition to execute rodney on november 20th as a da in the jurisdiction of the original as a da in the jurisdiction of the original 
In the original arrest, he has a responsibility to delay this execution so the new evidence can be heard. Um, and there's more phone numbers on this website, but that's just like the number one. You definitely want to contact them as much as possible. And if picking up the phone isn't for you, I have a hard time even calling the pizza delivery guy for pizza, so, or woman. Um, <laughs> you can go to the innocenceproject.org slash stand with Rodney Reed on Texas Death Row, which I will put because there's a lot of dashes and craziness. Uh, and they have a generated email that goes directly to uh, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles and the officer at the office, the office of Governor Abbott. Easy stuff, easy stuff. And I mean, whatever you believe in, pray, hopes and all the good vibes, because I honestly believe if they do sentence him to death, like the central texas is gonna burn Mm -hmm. people will riot like just even driving through austin there's already there's been mass support and mass push to end this madness and there's been tweets from kim kardashian rihanna like this case needs as much publicity as it can get so time is running out i really hope we have good news i really do i do too fun stuff (sighs) fuck (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I just like ran a mile. I know. I'm just like, oh breath. man. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, that's just another... yeah. I just wanted to give a quick recap. Shout out, uh, hey listeners, wherever you are, let's all do something. Pretty please. Pretty please. Yeah. So easy to do. Well, all right. um, my story doesn't get any better. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You would think I after, love the darkness. Right. Bring it on. You would think yeah. after Gary Heidenick, I would have picked something different, but uh, nope. Well, that's what the podcast. This is what this is all about. That's true. At least yours isn't heavy. It's a little. It's a. There's some happiness in it. Okay. If you okay. like dead bodies, but. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Oh man, I'm all burpy from the <laughs> <laughs> the rosé sparklies. Okay. Do 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 do. So, <clears throat> I reread this case like 50 million times to make sure I pronounce everything right, but I'm probably still going to stumble, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I am doing a case that is referred to as the American Dyatlov Passage case. The what? Say that again. Slowly. It sounds romantic, but yeah, I know it's, it's not. not. <laughs> um, have you heard of the Dyatlov Pass? I don't think so. You've never heard of Dyatlov Passive? Pass, passive? Passage? Pass? No. Don't look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that. Okay, well <laughs> I'm just kidding, I am. How do you uh, spell that? Spell that. No, I'm gonna give you a little uh, I'm gonna give you a little tidbit right now. Okay, okay. Maybe we'll cover the DL of passage another time, but or the DL of pass, sorry. Um so the case I'm doing is referred to as the American Dyatlov Pass case. I am doing the boys from Yuba City. Which, um, shout out to Yuba City, not really, but that is my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to throw some fun facts about uh, Yuba Shitty in here, as I can do. But uh, yeah, let's get started. So um, just throw go back a little bit. The Dyatlov Pass incident happened in Russia, and it was an event where nine people died in the northern Ural Mountains in February 1959. And they died in unknown, unusual circumstances. Okay, so I always say, sorry to cut you off, I always say... I don't know a lot of things. You know it. But I know of a lot of things. Yeah. Like, word, like words. <laughs> yes, words. <laughs> Names, dates, all of that. I don't know. Like, but if you tell me about something, I'm like, oh, yeah, that does sound familiar. That's why I told so you not to look familiar. it up. Okay. I, and I didn't. My hands are in my sweater. Okay. <laughs> Your Ouija sweater? My we- yeah. That's my favorite. So the... Um, the experienced trekking group, who are all from the Euro Polytechnical Institute, had established a camp on the slopes of Kolosiyakel, and that's in Russian, so if I butchered that, I'm sorry. Um, and during the night, something caused them to tear their way out of their tents and flee the campsite, all while, all while inadequately dressed for the heavy snowfall and sub-zero temperatures. So, that kind of leads you into how this story is going to go. Mm-hmm. And maybe one day we'll cover that case, wink wink, nudge nudge, but we'll see. So we're going to February 24th, 1978. 
uh, Joe Shones was having a heart attack. The 55-year-old Californian had felt fine just a few minutes previously, navigating his Volkswagen on a desolate mountain road near Rogers Cow Camp in Plumas National Forest. The snow slowed his tires as he scouted a location for his family's day trip for the next day in the area. Now Joe, in the midst of his heart attack, got out to push his car and the strain caused him excruciating pain. Um, and I can kind of see how he might have not realized he was having a heart attack because I've read a lot of reports and I've heard from a lot of people who have heart attacks that it feels like a really bad heartburn case. Ooh. So he might not have even realized he was having a heart attack. <sighs> so Shones was miles from help. He got back in his car to plan his next step. That's when he noticed two sets of headlight, one belonging to a pickup truck, another a 1969 Mercury Montego. Keep that in mind. Shones exited his vehicle and began screaming for help. He could make out what he believed at the time was a group of men, a woman, and a baby. They continued walking, ignoring him. He returned to his car where he sat for hours. That's when he saw what he thought were flashlights again. That's when he saw what he thought were flashlights. He exited his vehicle once again, proceeding to yell into the darkness. No one responded to the sound of his voice. Having had suffered a heart attack and his car still being stuck and now out of gas, with no heat, Shones decided he was well enough to begin walking down the mountain road and towards a lodge roughly eight miles away. Which, you just had a heart attack. It is snowing. It is freezing cold. Kudos to you for walking mm -hmm. eight miles. I, I mean, you have no choice, but that is insane to me. It's crazy what the body does when... It's in survival mode. When it's in peril and it's like, I'm going to die if I don't get out of here. Mm -hmm. I always think about that because, I mean, I just have like a minor cramp and I'm like, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Take me out. Yeah. <laughs> Take me out, coach. <laughs> he passed the 1969 Mercury Montego, but it was empty. Perhaps, Sean thought, it belonged to the group he had seen earlier. Shones was so absorbed in his... Sorry, I'm trying to put this down slowly. So it's oh, it's like, going to clack. Don't. And it vibrates like, doom. Yeah. It's just my glass. Perhaps Shones thought it belonged to the group he had seen earlier. Shones was so absorbed in his own health emergency, he had no idea that he was the last person to see Ted Weir, Gary Mathis, Jack Madruga, Jack Hewitt, and Bill Sterling alive. That's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No one knows how these five men found their way on this mountain road 50 miles away from their home, home being Marysville and Yuba City, California, which, like I said, is my hometown. Crazy. And to kind of give you guys a little bit more of an idea, um, Marysville and Yuba City are kind of about 45 minutes to an hour away from Sacramento. Um, and fun fact, Yuba City in 1968 was voted the worst place to live Oh, my in. God. <laughs> and they had a celebration. Uh, let me tell you, I, awesome. I moved out. ASAP. As soon as I can move out, I left and I have not gone back. So wait, when when did they have the celebration? Nineteen eighty six. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so you were not around. No, for that. <laughs> um, now these boys were usually. Oh, sorry. Now these five men were usually referred to as the boys. This is because all five had intellectual disabilities or psychiatric issues to various degrees. They lived with their family, who kept a close eye on them due to due to this. They were between twenty four and thirty two years old. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about them now. Ted Weir, 32, was the oldest and a former janitor. He had the mindset of a child and, natural, and was naturally very friendly. Recently, his family had encouraged him to quit his job at a snack bar because he could not handle the intense workload. His best friend was Jack Hewitt. Hewitt was 24 and 5 feet 9, the shortest of the group. He had trouble communicating in social settings, but when comfortable with someone, he was cheerful and got along well with others. Wire looked after Hewitt like an older brother and would even make phone calls for him when needed. So doctor's appointments or if he needed to get in touch with someone, you know, which I wish I had someone like that because Matt's just like, call yourself. Bill Sterling was 29, highly religious and had a mind like a child. He rarely left the house and just just for church and to practice basketball at the rehabilitation center that I'll be telling you guys about in a second. He liked to donate his time and would read Bible verses to hospital patients. Ted and Bill liked to call each other and laugh at funny names in the paper, and they <laughs> loved this. They did this, like, every day. Yeah, I love so that. Sweet. So sweet. Jack Madruga, 30, was an Army veteran who served in Vietnam, but he was discharged because of a medical evaluation. He was never diagnosed as mentally disabled, but others would refer to him as, quote, slow. That wasn't my words. That was what was in here, so don't get mad at me. <laughs> Um, he was able to drive and held a license, and he loved driving just as much as he loved basketball. Now, he owned 
the Mercury, and that was his baby. That was just his everything. So keep that in mind. Gary Mathis was 25. He had also been in the Army and was stationed in West Germany, but after a drug-related breakdown, Mathis was dis- Mathis was diagnosed as schizophrenic and medically discharged. He had been taking medication for schizophrenia, and he, uh, he had been taking the medication for five years and had improved greatly on the medication. Like, he was just did a whole 180. Um, and this was medication he hadn't bothered to bring along because he thought he was going to be home that night. And he was able to hold a job, and he worked for his stepfather's gardening company. Okay. So, Madruga, like I said before, owned the Mercury, and he drove his four friends to a basketball game at the California State University of Chico. And fun fact, Chico is the <laughs> party school. <laughs> um, it's got beautiful... The thing about Chico is it's got beautiful, beautiful hiking trails. If you ever have the chance to go to Bidwell, like, just, it's an amazing hike. Um, but if you want to party, you go to Chico. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just to kind of give you guys an idea of how crazy Chico gets, I had a cousin... Well, almost all my cousins have gone to Chico. Um, but one of them had a roommate who got a little too crazy one night and woke up and my cousin woke up and he was peeing in the corner of the room <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's chico <laughs> oh my gosh i no. love these fun facts by right, the way. right i'm giving you the insight <laughs> the locals guide <laughs> the boys were avid basketball fans and had a game of their own scheduled for the following day the 25th the boys played on a team the gateway gators representing the rehabilitation center called yuba city gateway center that they all frequented and this game was a big deal because it would qualify them for the Paralympics. Like, it, oh, shit. yeah, mm-hmm. like they were Time. not going to miss this game at all. And they were told if they had won this game, they would win a free trip to L.A. Oh, so just you would not miss this for any, any reason. You know, mm-hmm. this was their world. So the basketball game ended at about 10 p.m. And the boys stopped at a convenience store for junk food. They bought hostess pies, milk, soda, candy bars, and they all piled back into the mercury and took off. But instead of driving south towards their home roughly roughly 50 miles away, they drove east. Wait, so did they win the basketball game? This They were watching a basketball game. They're... They had their basketball game the next day. Oh, okay. So I see. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Sorry. And I'm going to show you a map just to kind of show you. Yuba City is right here, right? This little tidbit oh, right okay. here. Uh-huh. Marysville is right in this section right here. And that's about like a 10 minute, 10, 15 minute drive. You go up. And there's Chico. Oh, okay, I see. So Chico's about 30, 45 minutes away. So instead of going back home, they drove all the way over here to the Plumas National Forest. Interesting. The Plumas National Forest is two hours away from Yuba City. What? So that so is So people, like, why would they go there? Exactly. <laughs> so it's just a huge... <laughs> now my brain is working. Yeah. <laughs> and I will post that map on Instagram so you guys can take a look at it and see. Okay. When sh- when Shones had spotted the abandoned Mercury, the car was roughly se- the car was roughly seven miles away from the Chico basketball game. When Wire and Sterling didn't come home that night, their mothers began calling the parents of the others, and soon the police were involved. And like I said, their parents were completely absorbed with them, and they were always watching over them because they weren't, you know, a lot of them didn't have the mindset of an adult and mm-hmm. just couldn't. <sighs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm about to get. Real shitty. (laughs) The search was led by Yuba City Police Lieutenant Lance Ayers. Lance personally knew the boys and had gotten to school with Ted, so he felt personally responsible to find them because he had a personal connection with them. Um, And he pushed them to search the surrounding area near the Feather River mountain range, which paid off because on Tuesday, February 28th, four days after the game, authorities found the Mercury on the same mountain road where Shones had last seen it. And it wasn't until... All these reports started coming out that Shones realized after they had found the car that, oh shit, like, I had seen them. So, a park ranger had also reported its location after hearing the missing persons bulletin. Inside the car, the junk food had been consumed except for one half of a candy bar. The keys to the vehicle were gone and and there was maps neatly folded inside. The car was in good condition and it had enough gas to continue on but a snowbank had likely caused its tires to spin out. Madruga and the four should have been able to dislodge it without any difficulty, but it just looked abandoned. Around them was nothing but rugged, dense forest, and it was hardly an appealing option for the lightly dressed young men. Um, And none of them really brought jackets or anything because they thought they were just going to go to the basketball game at home. They weren't expecting to go into this snow-covered area. 
They hoped to gather a search party, but organizing a search party in the mid-set of winter was no easy task, especially when it meant combing through rough, rocky, wooded, snow-covered slopes. Helicopters surveyed the area from above. On the ground, officers tried to use horses to get around the rocky roads. Unfortunately, it was difficult and provided no further leads or clues. It began snowing so much they had to hold off the search till spring. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And there was a number of eyewitness reports eyewitness sightings of the men including one where they were driving the pickups shones had mentioned but none seemed plausible their families raised 206 the family raised two thousand six hundred dollar reward for information they petitioned psychics and waited by their phones but heard nothing but false leads wow and the psychics did they say anything that they just couldn't get anything nothing at all oh my gosh yeah I mean, we've talked about psychics yeah, we before, know about that. <laughs> but I always think it's interesting. Sometimes they help, but a lot of the time I don't hear anything good from it. Mm-hmm. So in early June of the... Sorry, we just had such a heavy episode. I'm like, <laughs> fuck, man. In early June of that year, 1978, a small group of weekend motorcyclists came across an abandoned forest service trailer on a campground site. They noticed its broken windows and a strong smell of foul odor. Curious, they went inside. Mm. Which, I'm sorry, if I smell something funky, I'm not going to go into an abandoned trailer with broken windows. I'm going to call someone. I'd probably peek in the window. Curiosity killed the cat. I know. It depends (laughs) if I'm with somebody. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I guess if you're a group of bikers, you're like, oh, let's go check it out. Yeah. (laughs) So they found out. We're not going to lose anything, right? No, we should have. Okay, cool. I think I ask that every time. Do I, I sound okay, right? Yeah, you sound fine. Okay. okay, they found a body tucked in a bed, draped in sheets from head to toe. When authorities lifted the veil, they found wire, his shoes missing, and his feet badly frostbitten. Mm. The trailer was over 19 miles from the Mercury, which means they walked 19 miles. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Soon, police found two other corpses 4.5 miles away from wire's remains. Police believed that they had simply given up before they found shelter while Wire and the others marched on. One of the bodies was of Madruga. He held the keys to his car still in his hands, and he had been dragged almost 10 feet away to a stream. The flesh on his right arm was mostly gone, but in that arm he still clutched his favorite watch. His eyes and two fingers were also gone, and they speculated this was from animals. Yeah, oh my gosh. Wait, so it said he was dragged to the stream, so, so an had, animal oh, I see, I see. dragged him, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. They also found several bones scattered nearby, which ended up being Bill Sterling's. He had been eaten by animals as well, and his remains had been scattered over an area of 50 feet. And it makes you wonder why they didn't return to their vehicles if they were just going to give up. Like, it's cold. You've gone yeah. all this way. Your car still has heat in it. It still has gas turned back around. Or apparently the car just spun out push it and driving Mm -hmm. there's it just doesn't seem like a reason to leave your vehicle walk 19 miles wait right it was 19 Mm -hmm. miles away Mm -hmm. from the car and die yeah so why instead of going to provide a shelter go through rugged woods it just doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. when you're on a road also you can wave down help well instead of going down a road they went into the forest yeah so that's another thing to just keep in mind like yeah when the news reached that three of the five were found dead against Ares' wishes, Jack Hewitt's father, Jack Hewitt Sr., joined the search. He found his son's backbone, Levi jeans, and shoes he had been wearing that night. Hewitt's bones were found not long after by an assistant sheriff, and using dental records, they confirmed his identity. Mm. And there was no sign of Mathis, aside from his tennis shoes, which had been left in the trailer. Without his medication, they began to worry about his state of mind, because he was schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Police theorized that Mathis had taken... Police theorized that Mathis had taken Wire's leather shoes, though police did not know why, and Mathis' body was never found. The discovery of the body just led to more questions. Wire was found emaciated, despite the fact that the trailer had been stocked with plenty of canned and dried food and a can opener. What? His, from his beard growth, they knew Wire had been living in, living in the trailer anywhere between 8 to 13 weeks. What? Yet he only had about 12 cans open, and he had not bothered to turn on the propane tank located in the back of the trailer, which would have provided heat. Well, do you think that because of, because what condition did, he had a mental condition. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to get into that. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, Several paperback books, perfect for fires, were left untouched, and no one had even bothered to cover the broken window that they had smashed to get inside. Um, And I actually have kind of a tidbit from someone who works with the mentally impaired that i'll talk about at the end of that that kind of mm-hmm. covers this so okay 
Talking to Shones only led to more questions. Who was the woman and the child? Shones admitted he was very ill at the time and the sighting could have been hallucinations. But that didn't explain why the men bothered to abandon the car at all. Okay, so I'm sorry. I'm going to pause you right there because I like little recaps or just summaries Mm -hmm. of all that we've talked about. There's a lot of names in this, so. So the man at the beginning had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And he was the last known witness to see these boys. And he saw them on the side of the road. Yes, with a woman and a baby, supposedly. Supposedly. But because he was having a heart attack, he doesn't know if all the adrenaline, if he had had a hallucination Mm -hmm. so he just wasn't sure um um but that doesn't explain why the men bothered to abandon the car at all or why they just didn't help shones either Mm -hmm. because he was yelling at them if this was them and you're someone screaming at you why wouldn't you kind of like acknowledge them yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Especially if some of them are really friendly from what we've recapped before. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense to me. Unless they were in a hurry to get away from something or someone. But they weren't. He didn't say that they were running. They were just walking. No, no. So who who freaking knows? Um, So why did the men turn east in the first place? Why didn't they attempt to move the car once it got stuck? Um, Was it by chance they came across the trailer or did someone lead them there? Why not start a fire for warmth? If Mathis went for help, where was his body, and why did they not utilize the supplies in the trailer? Most peculiar of all, none of the men thought to walk downhill from where they came, which we had said earlier. Instead, if, instead they faced a treacherous and unfamiliar path ahead. Police never ruled out foul play, nor did the families. Melba, Madru- Melba Madruga, Jack's mother, told the Washington Post that she believed some force had led the group astray. We know good and well someone made them do it, she said to the Los Angeles Times. She said it was impossible for her to believe that Madruga would ever drive his car, which he prized, to an area where it might be damaged. There was even a window left rolled down, something he never would do. I'm positive he never went up there on his own, she told the paper. He was either tricked or threatened. Ted Wire's sister-in-law has theorized that the men may have seen something take place at the basketball game that prompted something to chase them. Police were never able to establish evidence for pursuit, but no one could shake the idea that the men seemed to be determined to move forward. Why did... Why do that unless something more frightening was right behind them? Something that made them flee so quickly they didn't even have time to roll up the windows in the car. This case is bizarre as hell. Yuba County Undersheriff Jack Beach told reporters only one can speculate what happened to the boys. So, going back to some questions that you asked. Why? Why? Yeah, why? There's a lot All of whys. All whys. Um, <laughs> I just... I just throw everything. You do. <laughs> if it's your paper notes, I love when you're reading. Fling up. You just... <laughs> so, um, being that I'm local, was local, I have some Theory. town gossip. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I am Chismosa and I love gossip. Okay, where's my phone? It's um, a really bad quality of mine. <laughs> me too. I get it from my mom. I always tell her, I get this from you. Where is it? I took so many screenshots here. Okay, some of these are kind of long, which this is probably going to be a really long fucking episode, but oh well. That's okay. <laughs> okay. The girls are back in town. So yeah, that's fine. We had to recap. <laughs> so this is from a YouTube comment from a video on YouTube about the boys. I will link it in our show notes and all that on the website. But this is from Jessica Smith, and she says, Gary Mathis is my uncle. I live in YC, and most of my family still lives here as well. Not all the facts are out there, so keep that in mind, but my uncle is still missing after 40 years now. My grandparents always held out the hope that he would walk through the door someday. He was a very fine, he was a very kind person, a writer, and a compassionate man who loved his friends and family. It is my hope that someday we will know what truly happened to my family, and that we will know what truly happened, and my family will have some closure. Thank you. So that's, that's you know, from a tidbit from... Mm-hmm. someone who was affected but from a family member uh, t- 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 but what i wanted to tell you guys was a comment from sarah and uh sarah's comment's really long but it's going to kind of answer what you were asking before so she says so i wanted to say that i'm a caseworker and i work with intellectually disabled i can tell you from experience that it makes complete sense to me that someone with an intellectual disability would not think to look for or turn on propane i work with the individuals that i I work with individuals that I have to set, sorry, I work with one individual that I had to set up his propane every year because he could not. 
He only knew that it was cold and he would come to me. He couldn't rationalize the steps he needed to take to heat his home. I would always go over it with him, but it was too difficult for him to understand. He also had six children, and I often had to set up transportation to and from appointments to help him pick up any medication for himself or his children. If his usual routes deviated anyway, he would become easily lost and would panic. He was the only client I had like he he wasn't the only client I had like this. I frequently had to set up transportation. If his usual route deviated in any way, he would easily get lost and would panic. He was the only client he he wasn't. Why? Why? <laughs> this text is so small. Maybe that's why. He wasn't the only client I had like this. I frequently had to, I frequently had to set up transportation in my intellectually disabled clients. If they were heading somewhere new or places they didn't frequent, I would have to go check in with their providers to make sure they arrived safely. Most of my clients could drive, but they struggled with new information and often got lost. It makes sense to me that these five men got lost and went completely different routes than they should have. Additionally, it makes sense to me that they would not use the propane or use rations that were readily accessible because they may not have thought to look or perhaps didn't look where food items were. We may think that we should look in a cabinet or locker, but this thought may not have crossed their mind. They likely got lost and without a phone or other means of communication, likely, likely panicked and rushed out to find help. Unfortunately, they are vulnerable and things that may seem rational to us often is not to certain people of IQs under 70. Additionally, the argument that they should have some survival skills because of their military background doesn't ring true to me. You can tell immediately when someone's mind is impaired. It doesn't require a medical it doesn't require a medical degree to see when someone struggles intellectually. I would wager this platoon noticed that their comrades struggled and would help them survive where they could. And would help them survive when they could. It would make sense that a superior would ask to see him medically evaluated and that a doctor soon found them to be intellectually disabled. I'm not sure if it happened that way, but this would make my assumption. I personally would not want a vulnerable person suffering through a war needlessly for anyone, honestly. I imagine those he worked with and under may have felt similarly and reported him. I could see a number of my clients suffering in the way these poor men did, and it wouldn't be because of supernatural forces or foul play. So, that's some insider tidbit. Boo. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I want... I don't know. Yeah, I... I, that's it makes sense because you know they don't have the thought process that you know you and I would have mm -hmm. so but it's, it's just heartbreaking it's it's sad. really sad yeah but I got some cheese man. yes bring it <laughs> <laughs> so it's not over yet I'm not gonna put this person's name in if you want to search for it on the YouTube channel go for it it's gonna be linked I just don't want to but he posted it on a public forum, so yeah. whatever. Uh, <laughs> so someone said, I know Granite Basin very well. It's laughable that they discovered the trailer. The side of the road off Oro-Quincy highway, highways are crude. The highway itself is impassable during the winter. In 1978, the highway wasn't paved past Mountain House. Who wouldn't know the trailer was there? Someone who had worked for the Forest Services. That's the killer, a formal seasonal worker. And then someone put... Someone put that they knew some of the bikers that found the body, mm -hmm. and they think it's really suspicious that they found the body. Really? So there's some, I don't know if that's just local, yep, yeah, because I only saw one comment on it, but mm -hmm. it's there. Because on their else. body, if somebody actually did something to them, you would see it. Mm -hmm. Like, there would be evidence of that. Well, by the time they found them, it was months after, and they had been eaten by animals. So unless they were stabbed where you can visibly see if they hit the bone, you know, the stab marks on the bone, you really mm -hmm. don't know what happened to them. So it's that's another question of was it foul play or did they just run out to go find help and that was that was what happened. Yeah, I don't think they ran out to find help. Because, because they were in the direction. They didn't run into the right direction. Yeah. They ran the opposite way. And then someone put, I talked to a man named Norris who was alive and an adult during these events. He remembers it well. He said that the boys became lost after the game. My personal guess is that Madruga followed California Route 162, a main traffic artery in Oroville, in the wrong direction and kept going. Norris confirmed that it was much colder than usual and that there was a heavy snowfall in the area when Madruga's car was found. One interesting bit of information he offers that differs from what is typically record, reported is that Madruga did run out of gasoline. And due to the road conditions, police decided to... 
and due to road conditions, the police decided to bring gasoline to the car and hot wire it instead of risking a heavy tow truck getting stuck in the snow. There was gasoline in the car when it arrived in town, but only because it was partially filled from a small gas can on a site of the abandonment. The news services got this confused with, the, with there being gasoline in the car when it was left behind. I would speculate the boys decided to follow California 162, even further east, mistakenly believing that it was leading back to Oroville until they happened to cross the camp where Wire's body was eventually found. I believe that Wire probably fell ill and the rest of the group left out to try to get help. But like we said before, they weren't in the direction of going toward, like, going away from the camp. They were going towards the camp. Like they had speculated mm. that they had died on the way there. Oh, on the way back. Mm-hmm. So there's just, there's a lot of if back and forth that the news station got this wrong and that wrong and things aren't as they are reported, but it, there's just so many questions with this case, you know? It, it's crazy. It drives me nuts just trying to figure out. Especially since one of them is still missing. Yeah, and there is speculation that maybe Madruga went on a, like, schizophrenic freak out and murdered everybody, but no, if you're taking your medication regularly and you're not just gonna flip out and even because you have schizophrenia does not mean that you're just gonna flip out and murder people that's yeah, that's not how that works is. so but uh, yeah that is yeah. the case of the boys of yuba city some people think he's still alive today mm-hmm. there's a there's i think a reddit page talking about how he's doing well and fine and <laughs> killed the guys and you know whatever uh, no that's really interesting though i i can't say that i was familiar with that I didn't even know the case. I found it by accident, actually. I was really? going through weird, like, cases on YouTube, as I do sometimes. And it popped up, and I'm like, the boys of Yuba City. Oh, that's home. I'm like, they're not talking about home. And then I clicked it, and they started talking about Marysville and Plumas. And I'm like, oh, no, this is home. Really? So, so yeah. you didn't know about it? No, like, I've never there? heard anyone talk about it. Never heard anyone reference to it. Nothing. Oh, wow. So, Yeah. Yeah, Which is weird if five men disappeared from that area that yeah. no one talks about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm seeing articles that people are writing even to, uh, up to this year, it seems like. Oh, are they? Uh, yeah. Like this one was in February 2019 um, talking about Gary. I haven't – of course, I was listening. So yeah. I, I was just looking at pictures of the boys or of the men. Oh, I hate unsolved <laughs> <laughs> stories sometimes because we may never know. I know. It's sad. I don't like not knowing things. No. And I'm sure there <laughs> are, there's evidence hidden in those woods that just they never found because that's such a big area, you know. Really good story. I feel like I'm going to be spending my evening reading more about it. <laughs> good. <laughs> Okay, guys. Well, me and Ollie were talking, and we decided that we're actually going to do her story next episode just because we kind of talked about Rodney Reed a lot, and we kind of really wanted to focus on that. Yes, since it's so time-sensitive, and, I mean, mine's not going anywhere, and we try to keep these episodes, you know, nice and short. Not short, but, you know, an hour. No, we are not short episodes. An hour. Anything above that, it's like, oh. And we're, like, at an hour and 30 minutes right now. Once I edit it down, it'll be a lot less than that. But Mm -hmm. we don't want to go on too long, so. Yeah. But we'll catch you next week. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in and um, get your butts ready for Ollie's episode. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Before we end this, I want to give a shout-out to my cousin out in out in California doing good work, listening to us on his drive. <laughs> so he transports blood to hospitals. That's so neat. Yeah. I was like, hey, that's pretty spooky. That's so cool. So what's up, Betty? What's up, Ka? <laughs> and I wanted to give your your cousin, Mo- Monique. Oh, yeah, Monique. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to use, I, I remember your name. Don't, don't get it. I just weren't sure if you were her cousin or not. Um, but no, Monique is amazing i met her at the wedding she's so sweet she's got the cutest little dog yeah (laughs) but yeah no thank y'all for all the support i love how we're just like thanks mom thanks dad thanks cousins (laughs) no we have other listeners too yes yeah thank you guys so much um you can find us on all our socials at booze podcast oh you can tell the rosé's kicking in (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) i'm just staring at sam like "Uh uh-huh oh yeah all the social medias and we do check our email so send us your stories pretty please send us all the fun spooky things or any topics that you're interested in uh 
any chisme that you have mm-hmm. just keep it coming yeah you can find us at b-o-o-z podcast on all the socials and our website is www is that too many w's <laughs> www anyways you can find us at boozepodcast.com okay and gmail yes all right bye bye (laughs) we gotta go we're getting out of here bye